You know, Scripture was not written to satisfy our curiosity. Scripture was written to change our lives. So often said Dr. Howard Hendricks. It is not written just to satisfy our curiosity, to answer questions we have about good things, complicated things, unanswerable things. It wasn't just to answer our curiosity. It was to change our lives. So when we read a story like Esther that can stretch or be a little out of the box for us, it's good to be reminded what was God up to when he had this book uh, compiled, when the authors were overseen, to include it in your copy of the Bible that you hold in your hand. Esther is a story of God's providence in the midst of a fallen and broken time. Uh, Persia is the largest kingdom of the world in that context at that time, and they are, we're going to find out today, not necessarily that friendly to the Jews. And two Jews are going to step up and take great risk. Little do they know how God is going to use their faithful risk-taking in the grand scheme of things. If you have a Bible open to Esther chapter 3, Esther chapter 3, this is the chapter where it becomes frightening. The story takes a turn. Haman is promoted the antagonist is introduced, and it becomes a, uh, for a reader and a hearer of the story in antiquity, this would heighten their senses. This is where the drama begins to unfold. What's going to happen? I'm going to look at this today and this frightening turn. We're going to see a lot of things in the text. One of the larger topics, of course, is power and how a person uses power and what Haman is going to do with the power that he gets from the king. And we're going to find out very quickly he's uh, toxic in his pride. Well, let's look at Haman's promotion, chapter 3 of the book of Esther, verses 1 to 6 to begin with. After these days, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And before we start looking at the text, I want you to see the verbs, a good Bible study methodology principles. Look to the action, look to the movement of the passage. You'll see in verse 1, he's promoted. Haman is promoted. Then we see three times, pay homage and bow down. Bow down and pay homage. There's movement in the storyline. He's promoted, so you're going to pay homage to him, and you're going to bow down to him. And then, of course, the refusal for Mordecai to bow down or pay homage and then this issue of destroying all the Jews. So the, the, the verbal movement carries the reader, the listener, into the action of the story of what's happening with this reward and accolade. Now, you've perhaps seen these pictures or uh, 
presentations where they had the six phases of a project. The idea of the project comes along, committees get involved. The last phase of the project are the, the, the people that have nothing to do with it get rewarded, right? The, the people that were uninvolved get the kudos, the accolades, the rewards. Precisely what happens to Haman. Mordecai is the one who had stopped T. Resh and Bigthan's assassination plot against the king. And Mordecai should be the one given the credit. Promote Mordecai. But rather Haman is the one who's promoted over him. The plot begins to thicken here, and it won't be resolved until later in chapter 6. We need to ask and answer the question, who is this Haman? Who is this Agagite? Who is this individual? And I want to do a little bit of a sidebar history to give you some backdrop on the story's intrigue. If we go back in time, 600 plus years, we have a man named Agag, or the Amalekites. If we go back further to the name Amalek, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 36. Amalek was born, he's the grandson of Esau. You with me so far? So Esau has a son, Eliezer, who has a wife, a concubine named Timnah, and that they bear a child and they name him Amalek. Amalek is from the Esau side of the equation. As it comes down, the Amalekites become this nomadic tribal group. They're not a pleasant group. They're enemies of Israel. In Exodus chapter 17, for example, we see them fight Israel at Rephidim. And there's this ongoing plague that Israel has to contend with from Esau's side. It culminates when Samuel is made king and God instructs him to destroy all of the Amalekites. Now we need to take a sidebar to the sidebar. Uh, there are times in the Old Testament when God told Israel to destroy a people group because they hated Yahweh Elohim and they hated his people who were called by his name. And if they did not defend and fight those people as God instructed, they would be overrun and killed and crushed or they'd be brought into idolatry. So there are times in the Old Testament when God did tell them to destroy a people group. And that would take us to levels of providence we don't have time to digress on, but this is part of the story in our scripture. Well, you remember the story, and Saul, of course, when he goes to do this, they see some flocks and herds that look pretty good, and they decide to keep some of the best. They don't go in and destroy everything, as they were told, but more importantly, he kept the king alive. Samuel shows up later on in the story, and he says, what is this bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen I hear? Remember? And he, well, you know, the people didn't want to kill them. We thought we'd sacrifice them to the Lord. All this kind of dancing excuses. And that's where we get the famous line that we all know is better to what? Obey than sacrifice. God doesn't want your animal sacrifices. He wants you to obey him. And he told you what to do. And that's a chilling story to me when Samuel takes a sword and kills Agag. It's one thing in the middle of a battle, right? If you're fighting, I've not been in hand-to-hand -hand combat battle. I've not been in a war. But I can only envision it's one thing to be in a battle and fighting for your life for a prophet to show up who's not been fighting to take a sword and kill Agag because Saul didn't do what God had told him to do. Well, we still have the seeds of the Amalekites. Now let's go over to Mordecai for a minute. Who's Mordecai? We've got a little picture of this Haman. Who's Mordecai? Mordecai is related to Kish. Saul's family comes from Kish. So Saul was the king who was supposed to destroy the Amalekites. Now we've got players that go back feudally all the way back to Saul's time and to Agag's time in the name of Mordecai and Haman. Now it takes about 600 years of history to get to where I just explained. 
And there are those who don't agree with this. I can't be bulldogmatic about this. But if Mordecai is the descendant of Saul, there could be a long bitter root with the Amalekites toward the Jew. So when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, kill them all for what they did to my people's people's people. And that may be part of what the storyline is offering. How he becomes a high-ranking Persian official is the question that is hard to find a clear answer. Joyce Baldwin writes, there's another dimension to Haman's link with Amalek, who did not fear God in Deuteronomy 25. So I want you to turn back in your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The cheaters in the room can just click on your device and get there. Deuteronomy 25 in real Bibles. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when they were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Stop for just a second there. This is disgusting. You don't, you don't attack a people group by killing the women and the children and the weak and the lame. You fight the men. You fight the troops. And notably, the epitaph, he did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. That's the ninth time that phrase is used in Deuteronomy. You must not forget. In the second law giving, he's telling Israel, when you go into the land, when you are blessed, when you occupy what God has given you, do not forget, because that's what happened to your fathers. Well, the story unfolds. We're fast-forwarding 600-plus years, and Baldwin continues, Amalek was an act of defiance, a denial of God's very existence, the assumption that chance alone dominates the universe. And now we're back into the areas of providence and sovereignty. And is God sovereign even when bad things happen? At any rate, the narrative creates this great tension. The reader's anticipating what's going to happen. What? What? Mordecai wasn't promoted. Haman's promoted. We continue in the story. Verse 3, he refuses to bow. The king's gate is probably Persepolis, P-E-R-S-E, P-E-R-S-E, polis, like city. And for those of you who are bored while I teach, preach, whatever you want to call it, I give you permission to use your device and Google Persepolis, P-E-R-S-E-P-O-L-I-S, or later today, go do an image search of Persepolis. This is a ruin in modern Iran that is unparalleled. It's something like Herod the Great would have built. It's unbelievable. And more than likely, this is the gate area that we're reading about in the story of Esther. Persepolis would have been a massive interest with these huge lion-headed figures and hundreds of dignitaries and satraps and province leaders and, and viceroys would be there under Ahasuerus. Herodotus writes of this time that the officials had to stay there as long as the king was in a residence. He's got his entourage. It's a big entourage. Now, Mordecai is going to resist bowing down or paying homage to this Haman for one of two reasons either national, national, you know, I'm a Jew, I'm a stubborn, stiff-necked national, or out of religious zeal. 
both are legitimate reasons for him not to bow down to this Haman. There are those who believe it would be a worship for him to bow down to Haman. We have examples on both sides in the Scripture of where for, uh, for the, uh, the Jew to bow down to Pharaoh was to worship a god. But there are also times when the Jews paid homage to other leaders. So we've got to be careful not jumping on wholesale on a particular view here. So either it's a national zeal as a Jew, I'm just a stiff-necked Jew, which is what they're frequently called, or it's a religious zeal, he's not going to give homage or bow down to this Haman. Well, word spreads, and day after day the king's servants notice this, and word finally gets back to Haman, and they find out he's a Jew. Now the cat, as they say, is out of the bag. Remember, he's told Esther up to this point, don't talk about your national heritage. Don't talk about being Jewish, because that could subterfuge the whole, sabotage the whole thing here. So keep that quiet. Well, now the cat's out of the bag, and again, the reader, the hearer of the story is going, whoa, things are getting worse. Not only was Haman not promoted over Mordecai, now they know he's a Jew, and now Haman wants to kill all the Jews, not just Mordecai. So the reader, the hearer of the story, is, it's, it's building intention. And we get a picture also of Haman being infuriated by this. His rage in verses 5 and 6 are, six are not unlike the rage of Ahasuerus when Vashti wouldn't come out and parade herself in front of all the people. And he's infuriated. He's over the top. His nostrils flare. He's madder than can be. We've got a picture of this kingdom. A bunch of angry guys at the top. And Haman is filled with rage. Now things look bad for the Jew. Things have looked bad for the Jew from early time. From probably day one, one could argue. Anti-Semitism is not something that happened in World War II under Hitler and other uh, other nationalities that wanted to destroy the Jew, or even modern-day people that think the Jews should be wiped off the map. And we could discuss for hours whether the Jew today is the Jew of Scripture or not. But set that aside, there's a, a popular piece of history, and I say popular meaning light and not well-documented, a popular piece of history. You might have seen these charts and it's got all these different nationalities that have gone up and fought against the Jew and where they are today. And Israel still hangs on by a thread, but all those nationalities are gone. And I wouldn't say it's a one-to-one -one corollary, but it is an interesting piece of pop history to view this. We tend to view this, this line, we've talked about this before, I call it the one-inch linear line, the time Adam was created to the end of time when Christ returns. I keep that as a one-inch picture in my brain. That's how long life is from the day Adam was created to when Christ returns. We think it's going on forever. But from God's eternality perspective, it's just one inch for my brain to keep in mind. It helps me. And when I look at it that way and I see that bad things happen to the Jews. Certainly World War II was the greatest atrocity of modern history, one could argue. Um, the Jew has endured incredible calamity and evil and malevolence and wars and murders and slaughters and holocausts and women and children being destroyed in German uh, in Auschwitz in the, kinder, in the kinder camps. God's still sovereign. You see, we can't choke that down because we think God should play by our rules. And that's why that one-inch line helps me keep things in perspective. I'm not sovereign. I don't understand God's providence, which is why we call this veiled providence visible faith. I can't always see what God is up to. God allows evil. 
you've got to embrace that. Well, how can God allow fill in the blank? How can he allow AIDS? How can he allow all these orphans? How can he, someone told me yesterday they were worried about Zika. They're like really worried about Zika. And well, why does God allow, I mean, why does God allow mosquitoes? That's a really good question, right? <laughs> what purpose do they serve? Nothing good in my book. Why does God fill in the blank? Here's the baseline. What do we deserve? Hell. There's not one righteous, no, not one. Each is turned into his own way. We deserve hell. That's the baseline. So we must start there with a view of sovereignty. The only reason you have a relationship with Jesus Christ is because of his life, death, burial, resurrection. And you at some point had an encounter where you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. He drew you to himself. You didn't conclude it was the right religion you're going to join. He called you and you responded by faith in some way we'll never understand completely in the mystery of our salvation. The only reason we have a relationship with him is because he pursued us in love and he died in our place on our behalf instead of us, right? So that's the base baseline. That's why I need big high view pictures, not just why do bad things happen to quote good people. It would be a better titled book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Bad People? And just because we think we're not as bad as other people, we should have some measure of things not being as bad. I mean, that's nonsense nomenclature. We deserve nothing. Availed providence, visible faith. Well, look at the powers that be, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, poor, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month. So we calculate that probably 11 literal months. 11 months every day they're casting this lot called pure. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed throughout uh, among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom. Don't miss that. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's law. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let, a decree, uh, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. The word pur, P-U-R, also purim, only occurs in the story of Esther eight times in the whole Bible. It's a Persian gloss word for casting a lot. Pure being a lot, purine being plural, more than one lot, lots. And we'll fast forward that when we get to Esther 9 and talk about the reframing of purine. If you're Jewish, Jewish background, Jewish family, or you know friends who had invited you to the Feast of Purim, they just celebrated that this past March. And that's based on the story, a, a very uh, simplified story of Esther with a lot of rabbinic tradition thrown in for good measure to make the story even more intriguing. But that's the Feast of Purim we'll talk more about when we get to chapter 9. Uh, the Hebrew lot was different. The Hebrew lot was given, uh, you remember Aaron's breastplate, he had the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know precisely how to pronounce those two words. Two devices that were somehow dropped and the lot was cast, and God told the priest how to use those. 
intriguing that they're only mentioned a few times and then they disappear from Scripture. And my sanctified imagination is they were misused. And so they're lost in the story as well with many other things. What we do get a picture of is Haman's true colors. He has a very ingratiating pretense. Your kingdom, all these people, you don't want this. If you want king, it's ingratiating, it's ego-driven, and if that's not enough, it's money. 10,000 talents of silver. Now, um, I, I used to study these things and waste a lot of time. Well, some of you don't think it would. I spend a lot of time going back and looking at the equivalency of silver and gold at the time period it was and what it would be today. And I would even show pictures and graphs of what it would be and would go, ooh, and go on. I don't do that anymore. Um, let's just say it's an awful lot of money. And there's probably a little bit of an ancient Near Eastern back and forth here going where the king gives him his signet ring, which is essentially saying you've got the power to do under my name whatever you want to do. This is an executive order on steroids. And by doing that, he says you can keep the money and you can keep the people. Probably that's an ancient Persian culture of, it's like, you know, you can keep it. No, 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 king, it's yours. No, you keep it. No, no, king, it's yours. You can keep it. No, no, king, it's yours. Okay. Because the king's not going to turn this down and understand how to keep his kingdom. Well, the distance then between this jump from Mordecai to all the Jews is where the story takes us, and the order is then given. How powerful is Haman going to be? What's the king going to allow him to do? Verse 12, the order is given. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script. Think about different language groups, and each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict is to be issued as law in every province, and was published to all the people so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel of Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. The scribes is another word for the lawyers, those who know detail and math. Uh, the edict was given in different languages. When we think of the term scribe and Pharisees, we typically run to a negative view. Scribes and Pharisees was a very noble profession. They were the theologians of the day. It wasn't law as in practicing law like we think. It was law, the law of God and how the Old Testament was to be interpreted. Persians had their own version of these scribes, and they would transmit what the king put into law. Now, some commentators and scholars go way into detail that we don't have time to. But let me just summarize their conclusion here. The intrigue of the story is that the day this decree is issued, it's going to be some time before it's implemented. But the day it's actually implemented would be the day before Passover as the calendar goes. Now, if that's true, it gets really intriguing. Because we've got this Saul issue with Agag and the Amalekites 600 plus years earlier, 
going back even all the way to Esau. And now we're seeing it come all complete fulcrum to this time, if they're accurate in their study, to say the day Haman is going to kill all the Jews is the day of Passover to be celebrated, which takes us all the way back to the Exodus and all the way back to will the Jews survive and will Pharaoh be God? And who's God? Is Haman God or is Yahweh Elohim God? So it gets real interesting, but it gets on some pretty thin theological ice for me at that point. Uh, the seal, again, is the royal authority. The message is interesting, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. Um, Robert Gordas writes that this threefold explanation of the massacre is stylistic of legal documents. In other words, he's saying, have you signed a mortgage lately? Have you, signed, have you done a contract? Have you updated your will? You know, you get these papers. We, Sin and I did this a while back, and we updated it from time to time. And you're sign, you don't know what you're signing. You're just signing it. And if you try to read it, it's just legalese. That's exactly what antiquity was. It was a predilection for officialdom is what it's called. Destroy, kill, annihilate all Jews. See, nothing's really changed. Lawyers are just as verbose today as they were then. Present company excused. Verses 13 and 14 give us a very poignant contrast. The couriers are impelled by the king. The word means to be driven or hurried Go to work. Get these things written. Get them spread out. Get them posted. Get them circulated. Go implement them. And then cryptically, while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. The, the expression sit down to drink is probably a euphemism for a banquet. Let's have a banquet. We've done the deed. We've sent it out. Let's pull out the banquet, bring out the cognac, bring out the cigars. Let's have a little relaxation now. Now all the work's going to be taken care of. And we're meant to see this. We started out with the promotion of Haman, bowing down, paying homage, bowing down, paying homage. Now I'm not going to bow down. I'm not going to pay homage. Tension going out. We're going to kill all the Jews because of this one guy's inability to pay homage and bow down to the king. If that weren't enough, we're going to give implement all this in all languages and in the meantime they're going to sit down. We started with a promotion. We end the chapter with the guy sitting down and having a party while the city's in confusion. Four lessons I want to suggest. Three of them I have taken out of Chuck Swindoll's fine book on Esther. He's done a series of biographies. They're very easy good reads and he makes three observations that I want to cite from his book, and then give you a fourth. Swindoll talks about three lessons from three characters. First, Mordecai. From Mordecai, he says, we can learn, uh, never forget, there will always be someone who will resent your devotion to the Lord. Never forget, there will always be someone who will resent your devotion to the Lord. Now, let's keep this in a continuum and be careful here. Um, there are some who have a toxic Christianity, right, that we just don't like. And, and um, you've heard someone here recently talk about people that are oversaved. Uh, it's pretty good. You know, Jesus is every fourth or fifth word. You know, they're always quoting this and quoting that. You need to pray about this. And, and, and let's just, you know, put the, uh, the uh, mathematical uh, algebraic absolute bars on their language. They're well-intentioned people, but they're a little over the top, right? And then there are others who maybe live in liberty a little bit over the edge to legalism sometimes with their faith, or license in their faith. And so we're a motley bunch, us Christians. We're all one big happy family. But we can very easily get into a comparison, can we not? That other people are more spiritual, more mature, better than me, 
and there's always some that are not nearly as spiritual as me. That's one part of this. But what Swindoll is saying, turn it around, and if someone gives you a hard time about your faith in Christ, don't be surprised. Never forget there will always be someone who will resent your devotion to the Lord. So if you're going to tell the truth and do the right thing in the right way, and people are going to say, well, everybody does it this way, I, I don't. I don't sign documents like that. I don't take advantage of things. I, I tell the truth. I deal fairly with people. I can't do that for my employer. That's dishonest. Well, you know, everybody in the industry does. Wait a minute, time out. I'm not everybody in the industry. And there is a time that we all will face. And I've heard many of your stories. Some people have left a job for these kinds of things. At the end of the day, we're responsible to Christ, not the world's opinion, right? Secondly, from Haman, he says, learn, never underestimate the diabolical nature of revenge. Never underestimate the diabolical nature of revenge. How many uh, mysteries and, and uh, futile stories are built on this idea of revenge? How, how many of us, uh, someone's done something to us, they've hurt our feelings, they've, they've stolen from us, they've taken, it's an injustice, and we plot revenge. Now, we, we never perhaps act out on it, but we plot it, right? And don't we all love a good revenge movie? I mean, don't we love the line, revenge is a dish best served cold? I mean, right? We, we love revenge. And let's leave revenge to the Lord. Let's leave revenge to the holy sovereign of the universe. Let's don't us make that judgment. Let him do it. And thirdly from Swindoll, from Ashu Harris, never overestimate the value of your own importance. <laughs> never overestimate the value of your own importance. Uh, don't believe your own PR. Uh, some of us live in a curricula vita world or a resume world or a dossier world or whatever you want to call it, your bio. I always get, uh, it always chokes me when someone says, I need your bio. I go, well, I don't want a bio. Just say Michael Leasley, pastor. I mean, I don't want a bio on this thing. You write a little something for somebody and then with this bio. And it's like, I read it and go, really, that's who I am? Wow. Don't believe your own stuff. Don't believe your own stuff. Um, Cindy and I uh, parent differently. She's a much better parent than I could ever hope to be. I don't remember who the author was. I think I heard Rita Rudner give the story about women. Moms know their children's favorite color, favorite food, their boyfriends, girlfriends, their team, their, their, uh, you know, all these different, they know everything about them, their comings and goings, their schedule, their best subject, their worst subject, their, their homework, their favorite teacher, they know everything about them. Fathers are vaguely aware some small people live in the house. <laughs> and that's true in the Easley household. I mean, she knows everything about all her children. I, ba I basically know there's some people here that, you know, eat, sleep, take money, and that's about all I know about them. <laughs> She's a much better woman than me, a much better woman. Oh, that's obvious. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that one will go down in memorial, yeah. She's a much better parent than me, is what I meant to say. Uh, get it out. Just get it out. <laughs> come back. Come back. <laughs> so one thing I've learned, and as 60 comes up real quick, is uh, I need to learn to be quiet. I learn it in meetings, in business meetings, in, in context with friends and family and in the home. There are times I need to be quiet. I don't need to hear myself talk. 
And the older I get, the easier that's becoming. In your 20s and 30s, you think you have everything to say and you know it all. In your 40s, you start to forge it out in life. In your 50s, you start to understand what you didn't know. In your 60s and 70s, if you grow in wisdom, I think you learn to keep your mouth shut and speak when you need to, when you must, not just because you can or you want to. And in some way, I take Swindoll's observation, never overestimate the value of your own importance. It's two-edged. There's a time when you've got to say something. But for me, I can't speak for any of you. You've got to ask, ask and answer your own question. Uh, when do you keep your mouth shut? When do you just let it go? You can't fight everything. You can't fix everything. Older your children get, trust me, you can't fix anything. You can love them. You can care for them. You can understand them. You want to be with them. But you can't fix everything. And just because you say something does not mean you do something. Finally, a lesson that I would like to draw from 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to ask you to read these slides with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. Would you read them from the screen with me? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. If you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone, as I just mentioned, he lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead, and any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are part of the family of God. You are saved. You're a believer in Christ by faith. If you've done that, you're an otherworldly creature. You're an otherworldly person. This earth is not our home. This earth is a temporary way station for us. Peter continues that you might proclaim the excellencies of his glory. And then the caveat to me is verse 12, keep your behavior excellent so that in the thing in which they slander you, keep your behavior excellent so that when they come after you, when they vilify you, when they say that you insulted them, that you hurt their feelings, that you're hateful in your language, that you won't bake the cake, when they come after you by your excellent behavior among them, because of your good deeds, they observe something. Now, I don't know where this 239-year experiment is going. But I do know one thing. You and I are otherworldly creatures. Now, I don't know if you like science fiction. I, I have kind of a, a love-hate with science fiction. I love it for certain reasons, and then when it goes way off and breaks rules of science. I don't like it. So anyway, I'm a complicated person. But I love science fiction, and, and as I've studied why I'm interested in it, it's because of the notion of what's another world like. 
what would another plane, another space and time thing be like? And I, I'm not going to go on terra firma here, but in my strange brain, the way I think and operate, it occurred to me at some point, Michael, you're interested in something that's weird, but there's some truth in that because this is not home. We were not designed for merely this. And could there be something in us that is otherworldly? Yes. How do we live that way? That's the rub. So back to my one-inch piece of string. Adam is created, Christ returns and rolls up time. The immeasurable sphere of God's sovereignty, I've used this illustration a lot, we can't measure the sphere of God's sovereignty, but that one-inch piece of string keeps my mind focused on the linear, non-repeatable events that have just gone on in our lifetime, and they're over. Never repeat them again. You got married, you had children, they got married, they had great grandchildren, da, 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 you bury people, it can't ever happen again. One inch. God's immeasurable existence beyond that. I need a 30,000, a 50,000, a 100,000 foot view of this life that's otherworldly. Because here are two players in a Persian kingdom that are going to be used in ways that's going to reshape time. For such a time as this, right? That's what we all know about the story of Esther. Maybe for such a time as this. Um, do you see your world, your sphere of influence as you are an otherworldly person? God has you there. Not me. Not somebody else in the room. He has you where you are. In your sphere of influence, your company, the people you associate with, your network, your vendors, your suppliers, your family, your neighborhood, your extended family. He's got you in a sphere of influence. Are you aware you're an otherworldly person? As Peter said, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, God's possession. And we live in such a way, in such an excellent way, that people look at our behavior and go, what in the world is that about? That's pretty tangible. That's pretty easy for me to put shoe leather to. This earth is not my home. You and I are otherworldly people. Do we live in such a way that people look at our lives and go, wow, they're truthful, they're honest, they're kind to their husband, they're kind to their wife, they're kind to their ex. They're men or women of their word. They deal with health issues remarkably well. They're, they're the kind of people I want to be around. That's the believer's lot, no matter where we are, whether it's Persia or in the United States. We're otherworldly people, so let's keep our behavior excellent among the world. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that you've given it to us. It's easy to, for us to access in this day of time. May we become men and women of your word, not merely to satisfy our curiosity, but to change our very lives. Help us to live as otherworldly people. This earth is not our home. And to live in such a way that our behavior demonstrates to others why we believe what we believe. That Christ is king. That his word is true. That salvation is free. That our sins can be forgiven. And we can live forever with you. We pray this in his powerful, resurrected name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.